So let's start with uh, just a little something, uh, just a little caution that I have felt my need of uh, when it comes to the topic of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so just a little, just a little caution, and just take it in the spirit that it's given. It's not a hey, everyone who you've ever heard say this is wrong. I, but I'm, I'm leading to a point, okay? So about regarding the topic of the Holy Spirit, uh, you've heard an, analo- an analogy that because of the progressive nature of Revelation, the analogy is that there is also a progressive understanding of certain biblical themes the longer history goes, okay? So that's a claim that is made uh, because... For example, uh, the issues of the Trinity are not developed in the Old Testament, thoroughly speaking, but it, it leaves it to the New Testament to develop these things thoroughly. And, and also the Holy Spirit is developed even more thoroughly in the, New Testa- in, yeah, in the New Testament than even our idea of the Messiah. The Messiah was, you know, in, in its beginning stages being developed in the Old Testament, and, and we agree with that. I agree with that. Yes, Revelation is progressive. God didn't land all 66 books of the Bible in Moses' lap and say, here's everything you need to know. Now, it is everything we need to know regarding faith and godliness. Uh, But there was a progressive nature to it. And then somebody said, well, an analogy to this is our understanding of these doctrines as well. And and the reason for the analogy is uh, because... They want to make a claim that our understanding of the Holy Spirit has, late in time, started to come to fruition. I just want to offer you two cautions with this way of thinking. I'm not saying it's completely wrong. I'm not saying there isn't anything we can learn from people who make this claim. But just two cautions. One is a thinking error. So... uh, People in universities usually try to identify thinking errors so that we can identify those types of thinking errors in when we hear claims made. Okay? One of these thinking errors is if it's new, it's better. If somebody just came up with it, it's probably right. If it leads us to progress, that's a good thing. And then there's all sorts of understanding of what progress is. But this really is a thinking error. And we should try to get rid of it in our minds. Nothing old is necessarily bad. Nothing new is necessarily good. But we should measure all arguments by whether they are based on true premises and lead to true conclusions. Okay? So... The analogy of progressive revelation to progressive understanding, especially with regard to the Holy Spirit, I want to say to you that in the early days of Christianity, their understanding of the Holy Spirit was not worse than ours. In fact, it wasn't even defective. A second caution. Uh, my second caution has to do with our interpretation or our understanding of how the Bible is to be interpreted. Uh, our understanding of how the Bible is to be interpreted has uh, two subpoints that I want to make very quickly. Okay, the first subpoint is that we believe in what the Bible means is what the author intended it to mean. 
Now, this includes both the divine author and, I would argue, the human author. I would like to just posit this to you. John didn't go back over his gospel. By the way, if you want to just be flipping in your Bibles, because I'm making you really uncomfortable, you can go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to live in John for a big part of our study this morning. John didn't finish his writing his gospel and say, I didn't understand half of that. No. John had an intent to what he wrote, and by, even for him, divine illumination of the Holy Spirit, he understood what he was writing. Secondly, with regard to our theory of how we should interpret the Bible, we also believe that the words of Scripture were originally clear for the understanding of the original readers. We believe that the Bible is clear. And it's not just clear to us because we have databases to cross-reference the particular way this word was derived in Greek and now we can find all of its different places. And No. It was clear to the original readers of the Bible what this meant. Now, this has a couple of implications for me. When the authors were writing about the Holy Spirit, they understood exactly what they were writing. Furthermore, when the original readers read what the divinely inspired authors wrote, they understood exactly what they were saying about the Holy Spirit. So, why, why is this important? Why, why did I want to begin with this? One main reason. I want you to have utter confidence in nothing other than the Word of God. We should not have confidence in the writings of, of who we call the church fathers in the second century, aside from their strict observance of what the Word says. We shouldn't have confidence in the great preachers of the Revelation. Uh, I'm sorry, of the Reformation. Aside from their strict adherence to what the Word of God says. We shouldn't have confidence in what the 18th century, the, the 19th century revivalists in America said, except for their strict adherence to what the Word of God says. And today, when we look at our pastors, we shouldn't have confidence in what they say, except with regard to their strict adherence to what the Word of God says. So if, if we need to inculcate in ourselves a strict a utter confidence in the Bible, then we don't need to think to ourselves, well, some things are going to get clearer. And in fact, in 20 years, we might understand something very clear, clearly more in the Bible than what we understand it now. Now, again, these are cautions. You probably see I'm, I'm kind of passionate about this, but um, sure, there, there is no end to the writing of books. Solomon told us so. There's no end to people commenting on the Bible and even applying it to new situations. But our source, where we go to understand all biblical doctrines, is the Word of God. And from the time it closed with the Apostle John... To this day, everything we need 
For faith and godliness is contained in this book. Okay? So as we approach the book today, and we start to understand what God says about His Holy Spirit, what God uh, teaches us about the Holy Spirit's work, uh, we need to be clear that what we are holding to is, is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Okay? This is what Christians have believed about the Holy Spirit, from the apostles to their first hearers. And our job is to understand what they wrote, what they understood, and how it applies to our lives today. There is no new revelation. There's no new revelation since the Apostle John set his pen down in the book of Revelation. Okay? So, it's our confidence. Here we go. Now, I, I want to live in the, in the book of John for a little while uh, this morning. And I, I have a reason for that. And I want you to feel the emotional reason for that uh, as we approach uh, where, we're, where we're going. Uh, but, but I want to set it up. One of my burdens... Uh, maybe, have you ever felt in your head, in your heart maybe, have you ever felt, I am so bad at memorizing scripture. I know David said, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might, might not sin against you, and I am so terrible at it. Uh, you know, th- there's all sorts of sins wrapped up in that. There's laziness, and there's busyness, and there's, uh, there, there's a whole host of sins, but then there's also... Maybe for you, it's just hard. I don't want to present to you an either-or this morning, but I do want to present to you maybe a both-and. I have found it helpful in memorizing Scripture. Instead of trying to memorize individual verses, I like to memorize the structure of books. So instead of, for example, I know that uh, in John chapter 15, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches, you who abide in me will bear much fruit, right? We know that because it's often spoken to us. But I found it helpful, instead of trying to memorize the entire book of John, word, word for word, verse by verse, that would be stupendous, that would be helpful. And I wish you did, but I haven't. But I have tried to memorize the structure of John. So, let me just tell you, uh, just briefly, how John is structured. There's ten chapters, there's one chapter, and then there's ten chapters. Okay? Ten, one, ten. There's 21 chapters in John. Now, you're going to say to me, the chapters aren't original to John. He didn't go, chapter one, in the beginning was the word. No, we, we, we added those later. I understand that, but they were added helpfully later. Let me just review the structure here with you. The first ten chapters, chapter one, a grand theological statement of what John plans to accomplish in the beginning was the word. Oh, that's a mystery. What do you mean, John? He's going to, he's going to work that out. In, in John chapter one, he, he establishes his grand theological statements that culminate with the declarations of John the Baptist about who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. For the next nine chapters, uh, John focuses on the ministry of Jesus, from uh, the miracles to the teachings, the healings, uh, the opposition from the Pharisees. Uh, the, the first ten chapters of John are, uh, are the first three years of Jesus' ministry. or Yeah, the, the three years of Jesus' ministry. John accomplishes three years of Jesus' ministry in less than half of his book. 
The second half of John is concerned with the last week of Jesus' life. Now, you might think to yourself, that's not the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke are structured. And it's not. But it is the way John structured his book. That middle chapter is like a false climax. Right? You know in literature, right, the, the story is supposed to build and build and build, and then all of a sudden, boom, the climax happens, and you think, this is it. This is, this is where we win the war. This is where the, the marriage is saved, or whatever kind of literature or storytelling you like, but it culminates in this grand climax, and you say, yes! John chapter 11 is a climax like that, if you're thinking like in a Hebrew Okay, because here's Jesus. He comes on the scene. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. And and he's building. He's building his ministry. He's gathering followers. He's feeding thousands. He's uh, healing the sick. And then in John chapter 11, Jesus friend dies. And Jesus is overcome with grief. And Jesus goes to the tomb. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And here he comes. Here comes Lazarus out of the grave. And if you're a Hebrew and you're watching this, you think the Messiah, everything we've ever wanted, this is the, this is the inauguration of the kingdom of God. He conquers death. Look, his friend died, a Hebrew of Hebrews died, and he raised him from the dead. There's going to be no more death. I'm telling you what, Jesus is marching to Jerusalem. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to reign in the temple. He's going to sit on the throne. And this is the new age. This is the age to come. It's all coming here. And then in John chapter 12, Jesus marches into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey. It's here. And they're throwing down their coats and they're singing uh, praise to God. Um, and they think, it's here. It's here. And in the second half of John, we see Jesus retreat with his disciples to speak to them very privately about sorrow, but also promise. So we have this building, building, building in John to the resurrection of Lazarus in the direct middle of the book. And then we have this huge, what seems to be steep decline, where Jesus gets his followers alone in the upper room, and he says to them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I, we're here in Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. But he makes them all sorts of promises. I wanted to review the Gospel of John with you like that so you could feel the emotional impact of what Jesus has to say about the Holy Spirit. In fact, what I, I, should, I should revise that. What the Apostle John has to say to us about the Holy Spirit. Okay, I want you to feel the emotional impact because... Our topic today is the works of the Holy Spirit. I trust that Larry's teaching both on the Trinity and last week with regard specifically to the person of the Holy Spirit, you are utterly convinced that our God is Trinitarian. He is triune. He is three in one. There is the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. One essence, three distinct divine persons. that uh, They accomplish everything together, but they have specific roles. Uh, we're not going to cover that. I trust that you are convinced that the Bible teaches that God is three in one. How does that work out in my life? What do I do with that knowledge? Do I show up at some, uh, somebody who's grieving? Do I show up with a piece of paper and draw a triangle and a circle and 
What about when I'm grieving? What about when I have very little hope for the future? What about when I am in the desperate throes of sorrow or the desperate throes of confusion over the things that life throws at me? Right? When, when the emotions of this life begin to take over, does it matter that God is three in one? So last week we looked at the person of the Holy Spirit. Today we look at the works of the Holy Spirit. But we want it to be very practical to us. So I asked you to get to John chapter 1. And uh, and we're just going to start there now. So in John chapter 1, I want you to read with me 1, 26 through 34. Some of these will go faster over than others. John the Baptist has been questioned by those sent from the Pharisees. Who are you? And in John chapter 26, John the Baptist answers them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pause there for a second. We want to talk about the works of the Holy Spirit. In order to talk about the works of the Holy Spirit, we need to have a a preliminary understanding of the works of God in general. Okay, And if you're following along in Dr. Allison's book that is our text for uh, this whole class, if you read through that, you know that he made a particular emphasis of how we need to understand that the works of the Godhead are unified. It is not as if the Father has his plans and the Son has his plans and the Holy Spirit has his plans and they're all God, but they're all competing. And, uh, and here we want to talk about what the Holy Spirit does, but this has nothing to do with what the Father wants. No. Okay? The Godhead is unified. And in John chapter 1, we see John the Baptist making a reference to Jesus' baptism. Okay? At Jesus' baptism, the Son of God made flesh is standing in a pool with John and the Son of God made flesh is immersed under the water and he is raised up. Okay? He is baptized with water by John. And then out of the clouds, a voice speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. That is the Father speaking with regard to the Son. And then a manifestation of the Spirit, like a dove, descends and rests upon Jesus. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all there in Jesus' baptism. And John the Baptist, in his response to the, those sent by the Pharisees, said, I saw the Spirit descend on Jesus. Okay? There is a unity in the Godhead. So what the Father wants, the Spirit wants. 
What the Son wants, the Spirit wants. They are unified in their mission, even if they have particular works that in their responsibilities they minister to humanity with. Okay? And the Spirit does have particular works. Do these particular works apply to us? Well, John says that this one on whom I saw the Spirit descend will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Do you remember your baptism? Do you remember when, having come to the end of yourself, you just break down in confession to God, I have nothing to give you, but I understand that Jesus has everything to give me, and I repent of my sins, I believe in him, and then a pastor or a trusted friend says to you, let's make a picture of this. Let's bury you and raise you up to new life. And in that baptism moment, uh, there's, just, there's a celebration in the church. There's a celebration of what God has already done. And what he has already done is baptized you with the Holy Spirit. All right? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not equivalent with water baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens before water baptism. It happens at the moment of regeneration. It happens at the moment of conversion, which are two different sides of the same coin. One from our perspective, one from God's perspective. But in that moment, when we are converted and regenerated, that is the Holy Spirit's work in us. Who is he sent by? The Son. How does this regeneration look? Uh, get to John chapter 3 there. Just maybe turn the page one. Maybe you don't have to turn the page at all. Uh, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. You know, and um, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is confused, right? Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Regeneration. Born of the Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want you to... I want you to just put these in a little bubble. These are all synonyms. They all mean the same thing. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, born again, born of the Holy Spirit, or our more theological term that we like to throw around, regeneration. It's all the same thing. When does this happen? It happens when the Spirit wills. Period. We are not born of the will of man. We are born of the will of God. We are born when the Spirit wills. You don't see the Spirit blowing, right? Uh, a few of us men were here uh, yesterday afternoon and we, we were just talking and one of the men was uh, confessing a burden that he has for the young men of our church and how the young men of our church just don't seem to be committed like he wants to see them committed to the Word of God, to God's will for their life. And we concluded and we said... We'll keep teaching. We'll keep having a Wednesday night. And, and another brother said, I'm meeting with these uh, young men in, in a separate. And I know that others are meeting with these young men in separate occasions. And the fact of the matter is, we can't bring life. You can't bring life. Our pastors can't bring life. But there is one who can bring life. And it's the Holy Spirit. When we pray, we ought to ask the Holy Spirit to bring life. Because we can't do it. 
We cannot raise sinners from the dead, but the Holy Spirit can. One of the primary works of the Holy Spirit is regeneration. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, I don't even pretend to know how to spell like Pastor Ted did. I don't even pretend to know how to write well. But you, you'll, you'll have to decipher. What did he say? All right, maybe that's what it is. Um, one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit is bringing you to life in Christ. Now let me ask you, when, when in your life did you realize that you were at your absolute lowest? I believe that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is infinitely practical to us, and he is infinitely practical to us when he is helping us. So let's focus on those times when we were at our lowest. You were, theologically speaking, at your lowest when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And in the whole process of you coming to realize that you are dead, and there's nothing you can do about it, and crying out to God, and he enlivens your soul It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So as we continue to think about the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, let's let's live in that spot. Let's live in that place of where we, we remembered that we were utterly lost. We were utterly without hope. We were utterly in need and as we think about where the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit's ministry is to us, let's remember our great need of Him. Okay, let's make this practical to our lives. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna skip forward a bit. Yeah. Uh, just thinking about the chapter, you're talking about regeneration. I know uh, he, he mentions the convicting work of the Holy Spirit before regeneration. Right. That God begin. Yes. The Holy Spirit comes and begins to show us our need yep. of, of the Savior. Yes. Uh, and that's the initial work there. Correct. No, I like that. And, and we're going to, if time allows, we'll get to Romans 8 at the end. But, uh, but, but, but Dave's point is absolutely well taken. Um, the Holy Spirit begins his work in a sinner's life before the actual act of regeneration, the actual baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit begins his work. See, how you came to that end of your rope feeling was the Holy Spirit working on you? Was the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin and death and judgment, as we'll see in Romans 8 if we have time? Right? He is, he is convicting you of sin because you are dirty before God. He is convicting you of death because of the uh, sentence that is pronounced against you because of your sin. He convicts you of judgment because the, the, the prince of this world has been judged and you are his children before you are children of Christ. Okay, Uh, and so sin and the sentence of death and the judgment that comes with being in the realm of Satan himself, uh, that is the Holy Spirit's job to (coughs) pound that out of you, to uh, to awaken in you a absolute disgust for the sin that is in your own life. Yes. Thank you, Dave. Anybody has comments or questions? You, uh, I said this the last time I taught, but I'll say it again. Anybody has comments or questions? Just say, "Hey, you, I got a comment or question," and I will stop because I don't know how to stop otherwise. <laughs> Go a little bit further in John, to John chapter fourteen. I'm going to remember also when we have to quit, mainly because I have to get up to the sound booth. But um, go a little bit forward to John chapter fourteen. Okay, now. 
in our scheme of how John has set up his book, right? The earthly ministry is all but done. All right, the miracles are accomplished. The healings are accomplished. The the earthly teaching of Jesus is all but done. He has a few more private things to say to his disciples, but his sermons are largely done. Okay, and in John chapter eleven, that ultimate feeling of the kingdom of God has come and no one will ever die again because the king has raised this Lazarus and now I am sure that I will never die and I will live in the kingdom forever. Now we're on this, the whole half of the book of John is on a downward trajectory it feels. right. John, uh, uh, Jesus gathers his disciples in the upper room. And uh, in John chapter 13, he washes their feet. Weird for the guy who's about to march into the temple and sit on the throne. Uh, you know, rip open the Holy of Holies, go in there and sit on the ark and say, I am here, I am God in the flesh, the Messiah has inaugurated his kingdom and I'm going to rule the world from this spot. Right? Weird for that guy to gather his disciples in a little private room, take off his clothes, put on a towel, get a basin of water and kneel before them and start washing their feet. And for a disciple to question him and say, no, 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 you will not wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no uh, portion with me. And he says, my hands and my head, you know Peter, right? Um, this is just all weird. And then Jesus begins to, in, in, in John chapter 13, he begins to explain how one of the disciples is actually a traitor. One of the disciples is going to betray me. And they are so dense. They are, I, I, I imagine, you know, this, this excitement that has resulted in this weird upper room and, and this washing of the feet and all this talk about Jesus is going to die and it's all confusing and it's sorrowful and then one of them is going to betray me. And, and finally, uh, one of the disciples um, looks at the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is probably John the Apostle writing this, and he, he signals at him. So John the Apostle says, who is it? The one that I give this piece of bread to. And he gives it to Judas, Judas and says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And they thought, Jesus was saying, go buy everything we need for the feast. Right? They had just asked him. He just told them. You know, you would think, if this was a movie, right? Jesus hands that piece of bread to Judas and the other 11 disciples jump up and they at least tie him up and they put him in the back room or they, you know, they pummel him and they're, they're the heroes. They're the heroes. But this isn't a movie. This is real, right? The disciples just think, oh, Jesus must be going to ask him to, to buy more Passover bread. I don't know. Um, so we're in this descent in John chapter 14. Look at verse 12 with me. Here we go. You know, Jesus is teaching them. This is private teaching to the disciples. In John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus starts up. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It just gets weirder, folks. 
He's washing their feet. He's uh, telling them he's going to die. He's telling them that there's a betrayer among them. And then he says, listen, when I go away, ask whatever you want. You're going to do greater things than I did. And if you're a disciple in that room, and as you're as dense as you presently are, and as I presently am, right, we're just like the disciples. We're just like them. If if we're sitting there and we're hearing this, we might think to ourselves, how is that possible? I just watched you call a dead man out of a cave, and he was fully restored, and he walked out of that cave. How can I do greater things than you have done? Well, verse 15. I'm sorry. Uh... Yes, verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay. Um, Jesus promises a helper, all right? He promises, let me revise that, he promises another helper. You see, Jesus has been their helper for three years now. Jesus has been right there by their side. When they drew up camp in the middle of the wilderness somewhere where he was traveling between towns, he laid his head on a rock right beside the rest of them. When uh, they woke up the next morning and Jesus was nowhere to be found, they went off looking for him and they would find him away by himself, praying to his father, setting them an example. And their minds are being blown day after day about how this God-man is is dwelling with them and he has been their helper and he's been teaching them so much and now he's going away. What are we going to do now? Maybe the mission is over. Maybe we should just hang it up. Maybe we're in this upper room because it's time to drink the Kool-Aid. We're all done for because he's going away and I don't know what's going to happen next. But Jesus makes them a promise. I will send another helper to you. You will do greater things than I have done. How are we supposed to do that? I will send you another helper. He will be with you and he will be in you. Now, we've already seen in the book of John that uh, Jesus doesn't need to make a defense to men because he knows what's in all men. Okay, Uh, That was a part that we didn't cover, but if you're studying the book of John, beginning to end, you see that there's a point where Jesus, it is said about him, he doesn't need to make a defense to these men because he knows what's in every man. But it doesn't say he's in every man. But here it is said that the Holy Spirit will not only be with you, but he will be in you. The Holy Spirit will be in you when you're going through those lowest points. The Holy Spirit is in you. When you are confused out of your gourd and you can't make heads or tails of what God could possibly be doing in this life right now, the Holy Spirit is in you. The disciples experienced those kinds of emotions while Jesus was with them, but he was with them as an external example. But he's going to baptize them in the Holy Spirit, and when he does, the Holy Spirit will be in them. A helper that is closer than even Jesus was to his disciples on earth. If you want to ask yourself, how can we do greater things than Jesus did while he was on earth? Specifically referring to the first ten chapters, the three years of ministry, right? 
We need to understand that it is the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that empowers us not only to do these greater things, but to ask for the greater things. And ask in such a way that we are asking in the name of the Son and asking to the Father himself, which brings us to the issue of prayer. How do we pray, folks? In what possible universe do you think you can get on your knees and you can approach God the Father? Now let's just say a few quick things about prayer. The normal pattern of the New Testament is that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which is to say that we do not generally or normally pray to the Son or the Spirit. Now, it's not a hard and fast rule. It's not condemned or at least it's not, it's not said don't do this in the New Testament, but there is a general pattern. You pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're in a prayer and you say, thank you, Father, for making a plan to save humanity. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for willingly dying the sinner's death that I deserved. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying this. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about there is an error to avoid when it comes to our thinking about the works of the Holy Spirit. And that is, if we develop, if we develop our theology in such a way that it is exclusively the Holy Spirit that we think we depend on for all of this Christian life, and, and there, there is no thought given to the Father, and there's no thought given to the Son, and our entire Christianity is wrapped up in the Spirit then we are committing an error of sorts. We are, uh, we are limiting our theology to one member, one person of the Trinity when we should be celebrating all of the Trinity all of the time, which is why we pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And honestly, you should count this ability to pray as a privilege. It is not a restriction to you that your normal course of praying ought to be to the Father. It is not something that you should say, boy, I'm missing out on a normal course of praying to the Holy Spirit. No, you should count it the highest privilege that the Holy Spirit empowers your prayers in the name of the Son to get to the Father in the first place. The Father, depicted in the Old Testament, has His Glory reside in the Holy of Holies. That place where once a year one man would go in before the face of God and offer sacrifice for the people. And the people were largely cut off from the Father. They had a mediator. They had a go-between. And now we have that. But that mediator, that go-between, that indwelling Holy Spirit, He carries our prayer straight to the Father. So we enter the Holy of Holies when we pray. It is a great privilege for us to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, he, and the Holy Spirit is not offended that our normal course of praying is to pray to the Father. He glories in glorifying the Son and in bringing glory to the Father. It is a mutual relationship of glorifying one another in the Trinity. And this is what the Spirit does. Let's just go on in chapter 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while. The world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. Verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, 
He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Uh, jump down to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Um, I, I'm going to have to speed up a little bit. But um, another work of the Holy Spirit. Um, so we've seen not only that the Holy Spirit uh, is, one of his works is to regenerate us. Uh, one of his works also is to speak. Okay, The Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Word. Uh, Jesus promised the disciples that the Holy Spirit, when Jesus goes away, this helper, not only is he going to help them in uh, their acts of ministry, he is going to help them preserve the Word of God. He is going to help them remember what Jesus taught, organize what Jesus taught, Write down what Jesus taught. Make it in such a way that the Apostle John has a very clear structure to his gospel that we can now look at and go, that's for our benefit. The structure helps us understand that it is not the earthly kingdom that we're after. It is the heavenly kingdom that we're after. It is the city of God. It is uh, where Jesus reigns over the whole earth, a new heaven and a new earth. Right? But it's the Holy Spirit that empowered the... Apostle John to write this book in the first place. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit who brought to his remembrance everything that Jesus said. It's the Holy Spirit who taught the disciples as they were writing Holy Scripture. And in fact, it is the Holy Spirit who teaches us as we read Holy Scripture. What does God say? What does God require? What do I need for faith and godliness? The Holy Spirit caused it to be remembered, caused it to be written, caused it to be preserved, and causes it to be true to you. Which takes us to John chapter 15, verse 18. John chapter 15, verse 18. This is all basically the same address to the disciples, folks. Jesus is in the upper room and he's telling them a lot of hard things, but he needs to tell them these things because he's preparing them. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus continues to prepare them by way of what the Holy Spirit is going to do. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Why did I, why did I read all that? This is part of Jesus' argument. This is part of John's argument. Trouble will be faced in this life. They are going to hate you. They are going to persecute you. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would, have, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the, words, the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, 
whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Another thing, another work of the Holy Spirit. We've already covered it. But Jesus promises it again in John chapter 15. The work of the Holy Spirit is conversion. The work of that bringing us to an understanding of our own guilt, our own condemnation, our own judgment before a holy God, and then holding out to us the offer of mercy. And negatively causing us to turn from sin and positively causing us to turn in faith to Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. We say that... I don't say we say this as if we don't mean it, but we say it and we mean it. We pray often in this church, God, we want converts in Owensboro. We want dead people to rise from their deadness and follow Christ. We want Christ to get the glory for... How does this happen? It happens by a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we do not need to neglect the Holy Spirit's work here. We can understand what the Holy Spirit, what His role is in all of this, and we can glory in it. We can glory that the power of evangelism is not in ourselves. The power of going out and being a witness for Christ is not because... We are great communicators because we took a five-point class in how to convert people. Because, you know, uh, they showed us a video in seminary one time about uh, how to get people saved. And one of the methods, one of the things you need to do is, as you see the person coming under conviction of sin, put your hand on them and bear down a little bit. So, uh, so they bend over. And as they're bending over, this posture begins to, none of that nonsense. None of that worldly wisdom of what men can do. All of the power is in the Holy Spirit, not only to convert sinners, but also in the power of evangelism. The power of evangelism is the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I want to, um, I want to end there for just a second uh, because... Well, we only have so much time. Uh, I want you to uh, read Romans chapter 8 later today. Uh, Paul, in more detail, explains the sanctifying work of the Spirit and how the Spirit prays with us and groans with us when we don't even know what to pray. Uh, but in my uh, coming, when, as I was just reading different things, trying to prepare for the class, I ran across an article that I thought was unusually helpful. And there is a part at the end where there's a uh, personal experience about how um, you know, he claims the Holy Spirit intervened in a situation, which I have no doubt that the Holy Spirit intervenes in situations. I just I don't want us to get caught up in trying to identify all the little places where the Holy Spirit intervenes and miss. You know, we're so focused on the trees that we miss the forest, right? Uh, we, we, we need to understand the works of the Holy Spirit in their totality. But one of the questions is, how do we pray in the Holy Spirit? Okay, We've already covered that we don't pray in a normal course of our praying. We don't pray to the Holy Spirit. We pray to the Father. And we count this a great privilege because the Holy Spirit counts this as a great privilege. But we are commanded to pray in the Holy Spirit. And how does that work? 
Um, instead of taking time to pass these out, I'll, uh, I'll let you come and get one at the end, or if you want to talk to me and say, hey, where can I find this online because I don't like taking papers with me, I completely understand that. Uh, let me just go through uh, a few of the points that's in the article uh, in case you don't have time to, to read it in its entirety. Uh, first of all, he wants us to understand that praying in the Holy Spirit, by the way, this is an article by uh, Jason Mayer, who is the new pastor for preaching at Bethlehem Baptist Church. So uh, Pastor John Piper, uh, you know, retired from the preaching ministry there, and Jason Mayer is now their preaching pastor. Uh, he writes this article, What Praying in the Spirit is Not. Um, praying in the Spirit is definitely not of the flesh. It's not greater effort. It's not using more words. I don't feel like I'm praying in the Spirit, so I probably need to pray longer, so I need to use many words. And Jesus warns us against using many words. Praying in the Spirit is not playing, praying in the flesh. It is not lifting yourselves up by your bootstraps and praying harder and praying more earnestly and praying as if it mattered and, and convincing yourself that if I, if I just work at it more, if I just... Uh, if, that, that's from the flesh, okay? Uh, praying in the Spirit is an acquiescence to the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is uh, coming to prayer and saying, I don't got it in me. I don't have what it takes in my flesh to pray as I ought. But I have the Holy Spirit living in me, and therefore I have the Holy Spirit ready to help me pray. Well, how do we get to that point? And again, I'm just summarizing. Uh, step one in the article, admit your inability to pray. I'm just reading the headlines here. Admit your inability to pray. Your Christian life shouldn't be marked as a once-time confession and turning from sin, a repentance back there where I first met Jesus and now I've, uh, you know, I just do whatever I want. No, the Christian life is a continual, uh, a continual exercise of repenting when we need to and turning in faith to Christ when we need to and admitting our inability when we need to. And when we approach God in prayer, we need to just admit our inability. We don't have it in ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to pray, we need the Holy Spirit to pray. Step, step two, enjoy living in communion with God. This isn't a chore. Prayer, praying in the Holy Spirit in the flesh feels like a chore. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be constant in prayer. I'm not saying that when you don't feel like praying, you should pray anyway. I'm saying all those things. But... When we are praying in the Holy Spirit, we ought to be praying in a, with a spirit of gratitude. I get to come to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. I have this communion with the Father, and, uh, and that is something for me to enjoy in my prayer. Uh, step three, pleading with holy boldness. Uh, when, when you are praying in the Holy Spirit, uh, the article makes a point that our prayers are not coming, to our, not coming to God with our fist raised, making demands, but it is coming with a holy boldness. It is coming with a confidence in the God that we approach. It is coming with humility, recognizing that it is only His will that is to be done. But we do plead with boldness because we have been called not just friends of God, we are called children of God. And because we are friends and children of God, we can come to Him. And He does listen to us. And we don't come arrogantly, but we do come boldly. 
And the final point of the article is don't quench the spirit. There is such a thing as quenching the spirit. And I'm guilty of it and you're guilty of it. We're guilty of grieving the Holy Spirit when we sin and we dig our heels in and we say, I'm not going to repent of that. I, I, I was owed that luxury of sin. I was owed that pleasure of sin. And things have been hard lately and, and it was dooming. No, that, those, are, those are instances where we grieve the Holy Spirit. And when we grieve the Holy Spirit, we do quench the Holy Spirit. And so we need to be in a posture of repentance because God has been gracious enough to give us this helper. And this helper doesn't walk over here. It might be helpful for you to think of God always by your side. I mean, that, that could be helpful for you to, uh, to avoid sin, to, uh, to just realize that the eyes of God are always upon you. But even more than God being beside you, God the Holy Spirit is inside you. He is inside us to accomplish his work. So does it matter that God is three in one? Does it matter that there is a Holy Spirit it matters. It matters because of his work, but it matters because this work is designed for our eternal good, our conversion, our regeneration, his speaking and teaching us what the word says, uh, his uh, power in evangelism to bring more sons to glory, right? All of the Holy Spirit's work to comfort us in our sorrow. There, there are plenty of other works of the Holy Spirit that we simply don't have time to cover, but all of this it's for your eternal good, Christian. It's for your good. So when you're down, when you feel like there is no comfort, when you feel like the trials of life are just rolling over you, one after the other after the other, does it do any good that God is three in one? It does, because the third person of the Trinity lives in you and is ready to help you through all of your troubles. Can I have a volunteer to pray? And then we'll be dismissed. I'll pray Thank you, Father, for your good mercy to us in Christ. Send us the Spirit. Lord Jesus, not only purchase for us many, many things, but one great gift that we've been given is the down payment of all that we'll receive, and that's the work of the Spirit in us. We have the Holy Spirit, your work in us, and we thank you for what you do. And how you brought us to faith in Christ. You're teaching us all of these things that the Father and the Son have given you to teach us. You remind us of the things that we read. And you open to us our understanding of the things that are in this book. That you inspired men to write. You carefully guarded. And that it's perfect and complete. And it's ours. And we read it and study it. And you help us to see the truth in it. We pray as we live out our lives with an understanding of all that you do around us, for us, as you move the kingdom of Christ forward, we worship you in the beauty of your holiness. And thank you for your work and ministry among us. We thank you for Christ, who is our Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you'd like a copy of the article, it's here. If you just want to Google Desiring God, How to Pray in the Holy Spirit, you can get it there too. And maybe one per family, if that helps keep enough copies for everybody. If I could get some men to help me rearrange the tables, I think that's probably necessary for school.
Men, uh, change of plans. If you are planning on helping do these tables, we're actually going to take them into the sanctuary for uh, preparation for the Lord's Supper tonight. So as you're tearing them down, just carry them and put them in the sanctuary against the wall. Against the wall. And he said, don't worry, please just leave the chairs. Leave the chairs where they sit. Oh, well, I guess it'd be easier. Yeah. Get the ones out of the way, right?